Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective. The term just transition originates from trade unions. So what does it mean? We know that fossil fuels are fueling the climate crisis and we need to move away from them. However, fossil fuel industry is a major player in Scottish and UK society and economy. There are 30,000 people directly employed in the UK offshore oil industry, a further 70,000 in domestic supply chains, and thousands more living in communities heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry. How do we make a transition away from fossil fuels in a way that is just for workers, communities and the planet? With the global pandemic and economic turmoil, the context of discussions around just transition are hugely different now. While jobs in many industries are looking precarious, jobs in the fossil fuel industry are more precarious than ever and workers' rights have come to a forefront. Talking about a just transition is therefore more important than ever. Due to social distancing measures, we have recorded this interview over Zoom. Thank you for your patience, as the sound quality may vary throughout. Today we speak with Gabby and James from Platform London to talk about fossil fuels and the current global pandemic. Hi Gabby and James, lovely to have you here. First of all, I'd just like you to both tell me a little bit about what your organisation platform is um, and what you do through that. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, my name is Gabby. Um, I uh, work as a uh, Just Transition campaigner um, in the North Sea for a platform. I think James can probably speak a bit more to platform's history, so I'll let him do that one. And I'm James Marriott, and uh, I'm an, uh, an artist and a writer, and I work as part of Platform. And uh, my current work is uh, towards a book and also film work called Crew Britannia, which is looking at the history of oil and gas in the UK and how it's built our politics and economics uh, and what it's trying to do at the moment. Um, and Platform brings people together from the arts and activism, education and research, and we try to create a more just society, more socially and ecologically. So just like to ask, what does a just transition mean to you both? I guess for platform, I mean, a just transition is, is looking at how to move away from fossil fuels, right? Um, but for platform, a just transition requires the inclusion of oil and gas workers or any workers that would be impacted by the transition in any substantial decision making. It's not just that workers would be presenting evidence or that union officials are allowed to seat at the table. It would mean that there's participatory involvement in significant portions of uh, policy making by the oil and gas workforce. Um, because a lot of the time when communities are left out of generating solutions, the solutions fail to deliver any justice. Um, and what that looks like is that granular modeling um, of like what a transition needs to do in terms of retraining and reskilling. Uh, we understand that workers know what their jobs look like and know what their needs are and they have the right to plan their futures and, and decide what their futures are going to look like. Um, so I guess a just transition for us means 
that oil and gas workers are first and foremost uh, in control of their futures and they feel like they have the capacity to advocate for themselves when policy decisions are being made. Um, and I guess that also looks like revitalizing the trade union movement and organizing um, and you know pushing government to have substantial consultation where policy proposals that are made are binding and they're required to listen to the workforces that they would be impacting. Um, but yeah, that's probably how I'd define it. I think that was uh, beautifully uh, summed up. And uh, on a more general level, you asked about the question of justice. We, uh, we find it, the question of justice is something which is fluid and um, constantly un unfolding. We debate it amongst ourselves and think about it. Recently, my uh, companion and platform came up with a very beautiful line, which I think comes from uh, Martin Luther King, which is that justice is love made public, which I think is a very fine uh, summary of the concept of justice. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um... Can you explain what state the oil and gas sector was in before the recent financial crisis, both on a global scale and in the North Sea? I can, I can answer that, that one. Shall I have a go at that, Gabby? Go for it, James. Okay. Um, well, I, I think I, I thought about this question a little and it seems to me that there are three different aspects of it. First of all, uh, and this is um, obviously highlighted by the news of how volatile the oil price has been, the oil price, the global oil price was relatively st stable for about three years before this. It bumped around at about $50, $55 a barrel um, between September 16, 2016 and September 2019. So that was relatively stable. Um, and you'll notice that it's now down to, right at the speak now, it's around about uh, $16 a barrel. So it's dropped radically in the last in the last uh, few months of the crisis um it bounces up and down as is often the way so i think before the crisis happened there had been a period of medium range oil price and relatively steady for about three years the second thing i think of it in the period before the oil crisis is the sense that the oil industry was increasingly becoming constrained by the limits of where it can go to search for oil and gas. I think it was a very significant moment when uh, in the autumn of 2015, Shell finally said that it wasn't going to drill in the Arctic, uh, the Alaskan Arctic off um, the Chukchi Sea. That had been the result of a number of factors, not least the international campaign and the First Nations campaigns that have been running for nearly a decade up to that point. Um, and so I think that what that moment did was illustrate, actually there are limits to how far the oil industry can go. And that, uh, in that sense was uh, reinforced by the fact that shortly afterwards, BP was told that it couldn't drill off Southern Australia. Again, there was a limit to how far the company could go because of ecological um, constraints and social constraints. And that again was highlighted by the fact that France declared that it wasn't, was going to put a moratorium on oil and gas 
uh, exploration in its territories. It's not a huge impact on the industry globally because France actually doesn't have much oil and gas. It does in some of its um, in, in some of its offshore dependencies and territories, uh, but nothing very huge. But it was a very significant thing that one of the G7 states said we don't want any more oil drilling. So I think on a wider scale, the industry was suffering from a sense of that constraint. It was bumping up against the barriers. Um, you asked a bit about the, the North Sea. I think in the period before the crisis, the North Sea was entering an actually an era, a field, a phase of relative confidence, the UK North Sea. I mean, in November 2018, it was announced that BP's Clare Ridge field would come online. That's a big oil field, one of the biggest oil fields to be developed for some time, and it was off, off west of Shetland, that's right in the, out in the ocean, west of Shetland, towards, towards the Faroe Islands. And it was a result of a, a decade's worth of um, uh, investment, right about five billion pounds, um, and what the sixth biggest investment uh, in the North Sea since, since the 60s. So it's a big thing, it was a big thing. And it, the Clare Ridge is set to produce 600 million barrels of oil and carry on producing till 2050. So that happened, that was announced in, the production started in November 18. So that's only 17 months ago. So 17 months ago, the North Sea was looking relatively stable after a period of great turmoil in the previous decade. And it was looking to settle in quite nicely for the coming period. Obviously, this crisis has turned it upside down. Excellent. Thank you very much, James. Um, next question, I'll open up to both Gabby and James. Could you explain in a little bit more detail what led to the recent oil crisis? I think there was, for me, there was something really interesting that happened shortly before, right shortly after the crisis uh, broke. The head of Total said, um, the French oil company said, we are hit facing a triple uh, set of problems. Um, low oil price, the pandemic or COVID and climate. And it's, for me, it's really significant that he listed all three things, particularly climate. Um, oh, if we look at the, uh, the COVID one first, well, obviously that's um, very clear to, to, to many of us what the impacts of that are, which is what it was a crash in the demand for oil and gas. So what does that mean? That means basically cars are not filling up with petrol at petrol stations and buses are not filling up with diesel at, at their depots and planes aren't filling up with aviation fuel at the airport, airports, and ships aren't filling up with fuel oil at the docks, and gas, the demand for gas for electricity has radically fallen because the amount of electricity that's being needed in the system is, is, is substantially less than it has, is normally because the offices aren't running, the tubes aren't running, the trains aren't running, et cetera, et cetera, all of which are big electricity um consumers the result of that is you've got what is known in the industry as a demand peak basically there's just the the amount of oil being demanded has hit a ceiling and is falling down which is pretty rare um there is also practical problems that come from the COVID, of course such as um the out a possibility of outbreaks of it on north sea oil platforms 
And crucially, I think, and this is the very important aspect, is that the COVID uh, pandemic creates doubt in the financial system over oil and gas stability. If, um, if, if uh, say, for example, a company such as the Spanish company that runs the pipeline system that feeds uh, the air airports in the UK, it's a Spanish company that owns all those pipelines, and it makes its money from pumping aviation fuel to Heathrow or Edinburgh International or whatever. Now, that company is probably having a bit of a problem at the moment, I don't know for sure, because nobody is buying aviation fuel that's coming through the pipeline. And if they are having a problem and they go to a bank and the bank says, and they say, please, can you lend us some money to get through this problem? The bank's likely to say to them, well, how do we know that you're not going to have the same problem in six months' time? Because it may be that the airports open up again, Edinburgh opens up again, but in six months' time, there's another lockdown and it will crash. So the banks are unlikely to lend money to that pipeline company. And that's a good illustration of the doubt that begins to creep into the financial system. Um, and that, put simply, if you have a uh, billion dollars, the best place to put it is, is, to, is to invest in Zoom and not to invest in BP or Shell at the moment. Um, and that doubt is not good for the oil companies because it makes the cost of money more, much higher. I think then the other thing is the low oil price, which you see at the moment. There's endless sort of debate about that. I think the simplest way of putting it is that there's a battle between the major oil producers in the world, Russia, the Saudis, and America. America has been producing more and more, the US has been producing more and more oil as a result of the shale oil revolution. And the Saudis and Russia are keen to push this rival, this new rival out of the market. The way they can do that is by crashing the oil price, which makes it uneconomical for shale oil to be produced. And that's painful for the US. And it means that we've got um, a, a situation where we've got what's called a supply glut. And it's extremely rare in the history of the oil industry to have both a demand peak and a supply, supply cut, uh, glut. And the, the third big um, important element of the crisis is climate, as just as the head of Total said. Which, and what does that mean? That means the politics around climate change, which is the politics which is driven by the likes of the big folks such as yourselves who are listening to this program. As public pressure comes, civic society pressure comes on politicians to change the way in which they deal with fossil fuels, it becomes more difficult for the oil companies to move. Paris Agreement is really big, however weak it is, begins to have an impact on the oil companies and they are beginning to be concerned about it. And that's a part of the current crisis. Um, what are the impacts on the wider economy? I think the thing that is really interesting about it is it creates this huge doubt. Uh, put simply, you know, if, if the lockdown is raised in a, a week or two, and uh, then it's possible to assume that the wider economy might pick up again and things go on as normal, as they say. But if it's not raised and not in this, this country and elsewhere, and much more likely we enter a gray zone where it might be brought back down again at any one time, 
then we're likely to see a huge recession. Um, it, it concerns me that we may look back at this period in 20 years time and say, oh, do you remember that recession that happened? Yeah, yeah, I remember that recession that happened. It was a depression, it was huge. Um, and oh, do you remember the thing that's kicked it off? Oh, that was that virus thing. Yes, I remember that. So that what we experience at the moment is the virus having such a big impact, maybe a footnote to something that is coming around the corner, which is much bigger. If that impact impacts the whole economy, then that radically alters fossil fuel industry. I think over the longer period time frame, we've seen a shift in power and wealth from the fossil fuel companies to big data companies such as Google, Apple, um, and now Zoom and so on. Um, a good illustration of that is that for the last nearly 100 years, the largest companies in the world by capitalization have been the oil companies. And now Apple is many times the size of even ExxonMobil. And that's a shift that's only happened in the last five years concretely. And basically the oil companies are slowly but surely dying and being replaced as in terms of the largest capital concerns by the big tech or the big data companies. That's excellent. Thank you very much for that, James. I don't know if Gabby, you have anything to add on that or any wider thoughts? Um, no, I think I think James did a great job. Okay, excellent. No worries. Um, so the next question I'd like to ask is, how do you think this oil crisis compares to previous ones? And is there a chance that it could return to normal in terms of production levels? Um, and also, further question is, will there be a bailout? Um, yeah, so I, I can feel this one. I think um, it feeds into a lot of what James has just been saying. But um, I think, um, like James has hinted at, uh, we were reaching a structural peak anyways, which I think is um, quite important when we're comparing it to previous oil crises. Um, and, you know, you see parts of the fossil fuel industry trying to use the crisis to roll back environmental standards, reduce taxation, offload high cost assets onto the taxpayer. Um, and, you know, in countries where they've been able to you know, get their people high up in government, they're likely to succeed in that. Um, and, but you know, around 80% of the world lives in countries that import fossil fuels. And there's no upside for these countries to prop up a basically redundant fossil fuel system. Um, because we have, like James said, reached a point where the Paris Agreement and social pressure to move away from fossil fuels has become strong enough that it seems unlikely that we'll move back to the previous rates of production. Um, but I guess I would say that, you know, in 2008, after the recession, um, there was a lot of money spent on propping up high cost fossil fuel assets. Um, and I think that part of a reason for optimism uh, is that in 2020, it's a completely different situation uh, in terms of the cost of renewable energy technology. It's down by over 90% since 2008. Um, so I think that we probably won't go back to normal. Um, but in terms of how it compares to previous oil crises, from a job perspective, uh, if we look at the last oil crisis in 2014, 2016, 
Um, over 150,000 workers in the supply chain lost their jobs. Um, and so if anything, COVID has reminded us how precarious livelihoods are. Rystad Energy at the moment is estimating that more than 1 million workers who provide oil field services will lose their jobs in 2020. And the North Sea has seen a growing number of layoffs and employers have brought in hiring freezes. So in terms of how it compares to previous oil crises as an effect on, on workers and people who work in the oil and gas industry, I can only imagine that it'll be far worse. Um, it seems like it's going to have a much bigger impact on people's livelihoods than any of the previous oil crises did. And I think in terms of bailout, I think it's important to remember that since the start of UK North Sea oil and gas in the mid 1960s, the industries received substantial state support. Tax arrangements have been built on liberalization and company profits. And the UK has drastic, drastically reduced its sovereignty over resources. Uh, it doesn't benefit from taxing the industry and doesn't see the reinvestment that they use to justify the low taxes. They've basically pushed the development of North Sea oil with no regard for the financial future of taxpayers who are contractually bound to pay decommissioning costs. And so if you look at those actions over the past few decades and you see how the government has propped up the North Sea to the level that it has, I don't necessarily think that there will be no bailout. I think that it'll probably be complicated how the government helps the North Sea, but I can't see the government abandoning the North Sea after they've invested so much time and energy and frankly a reduction of their own sovereignty to keep the North Sea alive this long. It seems unlikely that tomorrow they're going to decide that they should just give up on it. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say exactly what a bailout will look like. But I, I basically, I just don't think the government will abandon the North Sea. Yeah. Thank you. That's really interesting to hear your perspective on that. Um, so our next question is, um, you know, is the fossil fuel sector particularly volatile? Um, and if we had a renewable energy sector, would it be more resilient? Or is it more about um, how the sector would be organized than the like quote unquote fuel? Um, so I can start with this and then mm -hmm. maybe James can feed in afterwards. Um, I think that's a really interesting question actually. And I think that more, more people should be asking uh, these types of questions. Um, I don't think there's an exact answer. My, my first thought when I read the question was yes or no, yes and no, um, because I think that renewables are less prone to commodity price shocks than fossil fuels. Um, and that's important for, you know, day-to-day -day resiliency. But I think it also depends how you sort of define resiliency. Um, because if you're looking at it from a company, company profit perspective, then sure, I, I think renewables have more resiliency. But if you look at it from, you know, living standards and, and workers' rights and protections, I don't think that there's anything about changing which fuel we're producing that would necessarily mean that workers are in a better position to advocate for themselves or ensure that their jobs are protected. Um, I think that comes from rearranging the way that work is organized and how much power workers have 
in their own workplaces um, because, you know, you could see uh, companies, you know, going bankrupt or government changing uh, favorability for certain re renewable sources and changing where subsidies go. And uh, you can look to the NHS or railways to see how their configuration changes every five years when people decide that it should be organized differently. And all of those things would still be happening in renewables to the point where we need to make sure that if we're transitioning to a new fuel source, we're also thinking about how we change how decisions are made within that industry and how we ensure that people working in that industry experience security in their jobs. Because I wouldn't call a renewable in industry that outsources most manufacturing and employs migrant labor in with like terrible pay and horrible conditions to be resilient. Um, but obviously they're not gonna experience the same price shocks that oil is uh, experiencing right now. Um, but yeah, James, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I would just to sort of echo something you said, which is, I think it's useful for me. I think it's useful to lift our eyes up and look how big a change can happen and possibly even will happen um, as we shift from our gas world to a wind and solar world. Um, I've always been inspired by the idea that there's a direct relationship to the, to, between the key f fuel source of a, of, an, of a society and the way that society is organized. We can see, you know, there's a very strong argument to, say, to show how socialism in the 19th and 20th century was basically born out of the coal mine. If you in, in the UK and in other European states, the, the absolute drivers of socialism or social democracy was invariably the coal mining industry, um, the miners, unions. And in, in this country, in the UK, it's not for nothing, for example, that the, uh, the NHS, which we see as a great uh, bastion of, um, of, of, of social democracy in a civilized society, was born in in a coal mining village, so it's not coincidental. Um, similarly, there's a strong argument to show how um, the oil and gas world has bred a level of uh, inequality, which which was mu is much more extreme than was in the coal world. You can see that between states, the vast concentrations of wealth. Say, for example, in in the, the Emirates in in uh, the Gulf and the Persian Gulf, or vast concentrations of wealth in, say, for example, the individuals, the oligarchs who run uh, private oil companies, such as in Russia, or the individuals who you know, uh, who who are the, the heads of uh, the major oil corporations. I mean, think about the wage differential between, say, Bernard Looney, who's the head of BP, and the person who comes as a delivery uh, person to deliver sandwiches to the office in which he works. I mean, that the, the oil, oil industry has generated inequality and not necessarily generated democracy. The question that, from my mind, that comes from that is what is the world, what is the social structure that can come from renewables? Is it just going to be a continuation of what we have in the world of oil and gas, or could it be something new? Could it be something which is 
very different, much more communitarian, much more democratic, and much more equal. I think there's huge potentials in within the very basis of the of the of the energy source, which is, after all, renewable. It says it on the tin. It's not an end. It is an endlessly endless source of energy. The wind will always blow, unlike oil, which will always run out. Thank you very much for that, James. Um, and speaking of inequality, Gabby, you mentioned earlier that this oil crisis will be particularly severe in terms of the impacts on workers and communities invested in the sector. So I'd just like to ask you how you think this crash will affect a just transition in the short and long-term timescales? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, I think that it's important when we're looking at the oil crisis or, or with coronavirus in general that we understand that you know, coronavirus is hitting racialized and marginalized communities the hardest. Um, and I think it's no different when it comes to looking at an oil crisis where people are being laid off. You know, the first people laid off are usually the ones who are the most precarious. I think when it comes to how it's going to affect a just transition, um, obviously the, the positive outlook is that um, this crisis seeds doubt about investment in the oil and gas industry. Um, obviously the, the, um, opposite is that it could be bad if the state spends its time propping up the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, Shell and BP would obviously like the government to bail out the North Sea. Are they more powerful than Vattenfall and Nordstead and other wind farm companies? Definitely. And they definitely have a voice in government. Um, but I think... It's also an opportunity in that um, crisis also calls for a lot of community organizing and a lot of people coming together and, and figuring out how to protect themselves and protect their communities. And I think that the coronavirus crisis um, in conjunction with the oil crisis allows for conversations to happen um, in oil and gas communities where they might not have been thinking about a just transition before this. Um, it's just so clear that their jobs are in jeopardy and that their livelihoods are in jeopardy that maybe um, it's an opportunity to start a conversation about what they need and what they want and how we can get there. Um, so I think, you know, it, like any crisis, there's, there's reasons for optimism and there's reasons for uh, skepticism. And, and um, yeah, I basically think it's, it's hard to say. I think that... Um, if we had a different government, I would be more um, optimistic about their move towards a more democratic and just energy production. Um, I'm not particularly optimistic that the government will take this opportunity, but I think that communities might take the opportunity to, you know, uh, build capacity to advocate for themselves. And I think that that is really important and could be a very positive thing. And, you know, mutual aid networks and people coming together to figure out how to weather the crisis, that sort of organizing doesn't disappear when the crisis is gone. And I think that it's good breeding ground uh, for sorting out what a just transition needs to look like at a local level.
Great, thank you, Gabby. Um, well, I guess in contrast to, um, you know, some of the positive things that could come from the crisis, I've I also read some pretty negative things. Um, I, I read recently that um, Big Oil is using um, COVID-19 to push through um, the Keystone XL pipeline. I was wondering if um, you could speak a little bit about this and, and maybe expand, like, is, is this sort of thing happening a lot like elsewhere um, and are there any other ways in which fossil fuel companies are um, you know taking advantage of the Covid crisis? Um, yeah I mean it's a bummer <laughs> that uh, Keystone's being pushed through it's not totally I'm if you can't tell from my accent I'm, I'm from Canada and uh, it's not surprising to me that uh, for anyone that doesn't know basically the Alberta Premier um, has invested $1.1 billion of taxpayers' money, TC Energy, to, to fund the construction of, of Keystone. And the U.S. and uh, Canadian governments have really taken advantage of the lockdown to uh, basically fly thousands of workers to Montana and uh, build the pipeline when protesters uh, weren't able to stop it. Um, you know, there's been a couple court rulings since they've started doing that and, uh, you know, it's unclear exactly what's going to happen, but it doesn't surprise me that they would use this opportunity to build Keystone. They've been trying to build Keystone for a decade now. Um, and it's disappointing, but, uh, yeah, it's also not surprising. Um, James, do you want to speak about, uh, the other ways in which fossil fuel companies could benefit yeah, from COVID? Yeah, I can do that. I mean, I think one thing is worthwhile on a, on a bigger level is to understand that all companies are, are very well equipped and uh, very used to sort of crises like this. This is a very particularly complex one, but they're not unused to this kinds of thing happening. You know, if, you, if you're a smallholding farmer, you built into your very bones is the idea that some years you're going to have a good harvest and some years you're going to have a bad harvest and you have to cope with that uh, variability. Um, and the oil companies are extremely adept at coping with uh, the oil price, the value of the thing that they're digging out of the ground or pumping out of the ground, varying um, hugely over time i mean you, you if you look at a, a a graph of the global oil price over the last hundred years it goes up and down like a yo-yo it's constantly hot going high and crashing high and crashing um and 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 that's something that all of these companies are extremely used to and the name of the game in the oil industry is not to worry too much about how they get out of the immediate pickle of the fact that suddenly the thing that they're selling is worth half it was two weeks ago. Um, but how to use that crisis to its own ends, which means not dealing with something that's happening in the next six months or a year, but see what we can gain from it in three years' time, five years' time, ten years' time. So it often uses a crisis like this to push governments uh, to have um, to change the, the uh, terms on which they are 
operating. A good example happened in the UK North Sea. From, from the mid-60s onwards, where North Sea oil was developed, it was always a question of who would pay for the cleanup. We understand that, you know, if, um, you know, if a, factory, a chemical factory in the UK is, is closed down, the company is supposed to uh, clean up the land and so on and so forth. Often it wriggles out of it, but it's supposed to clean up the land and return it to normal. There was always a question what would happen to the seabed you know, this is something which is out of sight and out of mind, often very deep. Are the companies supposed to clear it up or not? Uh, and that's been a debate for the best part of a half a century. And the, of course, it was in the interest of the oil companies to persuade the state that they should pay for cleaning it up and that the private oil companies shouldn't. And they weren't doing particularly well at winning that argument until in about 2010 when the UK government was exceptionally weak in the recession that fell, uh, came after the last, the big financial crisis of 08, 09, uh, the oil companies effectively finally cut the deal which they've been looking for for a long time. When the uh, minister who's at the Treasury, Nicky Morgan, um, basically signed away the, the co huge amounts of the costs of the oil companies and said the state would pay for what's known as decommissioning. That's the clearing up of um, the platforms and the, the seabed. Um, now, the companies have to pay for a bit, but, they, but they've come away with a much, much, much better deal than they've ever had before. And that's a very good example of seeing how companies basically use a crisis to gain a long-term benefit. And it's exactly the same as what happens in the Keystone XL you're seeing that kind of thing happening here in the UK. The trouble is, it's often very difficult to see at the moment, right now, what deals are being cut because it's being done behind closed doors in uh, Whitehall and in Gov and Westminster, and we only see the results maybe five years down the line. Thank you, James. That's really great to hear your views on that. Um, and moving on to the final question, perhaps a broad um, inquiry, but I'd like to ask you both, Gabby and James, where would you like to see us heading in five years time after this crisis? So what changes would you like to see within society, both at a UK and also at an international level? Oh, wow, that's a big question. Um, I think, uh... I'm, I, I know that it, it should probably be in my ideal dreams, but this actually is probably in my ideal dreams. I think one of the most important things um, that I would like to see in, in the next five years within the UK and, and anywhere really would be high unionization rates across the oil and gas industry, because right now it sits at around 10% of the workforce unionized. And I think that uh, in five years, if we saw, you know, 80% of the workforce unionized and actively engaged in their local branches and organizing within their companies and with their coworkers, uh, it would mean that we have a robust resistance being created within the oil and gas workforce to make sure that they don't feel the impacts of a transition as heavily as they would if it happened right now. Um, and I think that also looks like rank and file members submitting motions to their unions related to just transition and transition policy. 
Um, but you know, moving outside of unionizing, uh, in my wildest dreams, uh, it would probably be that the government had conducted or was conducting a mass consultation of oil and gas supply chain workers on what education and training they want to move out of the fossil fuel industry. And that there was a commitment by government to pay for that retraining and education and to ensure that salaries stayed the same for at least five years while workers were transitioning out of the fossil fuel industry. I think it would also be great if the government uh, got rid of decommissioning relief deeds, which is the government's current commitment for the taxpayer to pay for decommissioning costs. That would be great if uh, the UK government got rid of those. Um, and yeah, that's probably what I would say. James, what do you want to add? Um, oh, also, I would say like the end of capital, like extractive capitalism as it exists right now, but it's five years away. So that's a bit extreme. Um, I think for me, the, the thing is a sense of people owning and possessing uh, the renewable energy systems which supply their daily lives. What I find fascinating in the last period is the way in which the NHS has, there's been an expression of how the NHS is somehow belonging, a, a sense in society that it belongs to people, it belongs to everybody, that people don't want it destroyed, they want it to be there to protect them. They want it to be there to protect their families. They'll go out on Thursday nights and clap because they think it's a wonderful thing. And now, of course, the situation in the NHS is dire. Of course, the way in which people are treated, um, the staff are treated, and the whole question of PPE and so on and so forth is dire. However, what is interesting is that in public opinion, people want it to exist and they believe it belongs to them. It, and they don't like the idea that it goes to off to be, be privatized to American corporations or whatever. I think it would be amazing if we had a situation whereby slowly but surely all the wind farms that were going to, are gonna populate the North Sea and perhaps bits and mountains in, in Scotland as well, all of those things became possessed by the public by the civil society. People began thought, these things, they belong to us. We want them to serve us. We want them to work for us. When I turn the lights on in my house, I know where the electricity is coming from. I know that the, 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 the system is, is having a, a positive effect on the, on, uh, on the ecologies of the North Sea. I know that the people who are working it are being paid well and they're unionized. And I can feel that sense of ownership. And we want, I want, I'd love to begin to create that sense of public ownership, possession of this energy source. And that sense of possession is going to be built through, as not just through legislation, but through films, through song, through dance, through everything. A sense of this belongs to us. You know, part of the reason why the NHS people feel that the NHS sort of belongs to them is that they've been bombarded throughout their lives of TV programs of doctors and nurses running around. And they, uh, whereas the amount of TV programs you've ever seen of our oil workers in the North Sea is zip, very, very few. Um, and we need to build up a sense of ownership and possession, and that is culture that will do that. Thank you.
Thank you so much for that, guys. Um, it's really great to hear these wishes, like both like specific policy changes and broader cultural changes, because sometimes it's really, for me, it's quite easy for me to articulate what I don't want, but sometimes, you know, um, articulating what you do want and visualising an ideal future is much more difficult. So I find that really helpful. Thank you both. Yeah, I think we're going to wrap up there. That's all our questions. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was really, really interesting. Yeah, it was brilliant. Thank you so much again, just to uh, you both, Gabby and James. It was really great to meet you. Thank you and good luck in what you're doing. And uh, let us know when it goes out. Be really interested to see that and to hear any feedback and any questions and uh, criticisms or whatever that come back would be really great to hear. Thank you very much for your time and inviting Thank you. us. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank guys, you. thank you so much. You can find out more about Platform London by visiting platformlondon.org. And we would particularly recommend the Sea Change Report. We've also put a link to this report in the description. This podcast was brought to you by Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. This podcast is supported by the Erasmus Plus programme of the European Union with thanks also to Scottish Communities Climate Action Network.